0: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God,
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. When Gina Rosero walked into our podcast studio, I have to be honest, I was stunned by her beauty. She was wearing a gray cashmere sweater, black jeans, with a simple silver necklace, and she had a regal, almost otherworldly quality. She also had a very unpretentious easiness about her. But behind all of this is a pretty extraordinary life story, which she
2: writes about in her new memoir, called Horse Barbie. America still needs to see more stories about what it truly means to be trans and not just one type of representation. You know, for eight years passing as a cis model to knowing that we need to tell more varied stories because I think that's when we really fully show the humanity of it. Gina describes herself
0: as a little femme boy growing up in Manila in the Philippines. And she got very emotional, talking about the unconditional love of her parents, especially her mother, and what it was like for so many years being, as she called it, both visible yet invisible, as she kept her true identity a secret. We'll talk with her about going stealth for so many years, terrified she would be discovered and lose everything. Would you like a chair? You sure? Yeah. I feel bad. I think you should okay. get a chair. No? <laughs> you you can get a That's chair. That's an option. Honestly. Be, like, moving, so. You sure? Yeah. Okay. okay. You. All right. Okay. I am super excited to be here with you, Gina Rosero, to talk about your memoir, Horse Barbie, and really talk about your life, because to say it is an extraordinary life, I think is a massive understatement. Before we talk about the content of your book and your story, I just wanted to ask you a bit about the process of writing it. yeah. As someone who recently wrote a memoir, I'm curious what it was like for you to chronicle
2: your entire life. I wrote this during the pandemic, and it was two years of writing. And it's just that process of um, getting in my space from 9 to 3 o'clock, I'm a morning creative. By 3 p.m., there's nothing. Like, I'm quite literally exhausted, and I need to just completely chill down. You're tapped out. I'm tapped out, and I was doing this for, for two years. Um, I would listen to a podcast. I would read a book or light up a candle, have a little process, or read a little a page of another person's memoir, you know, and and just getting into it. And I'm sure you know this but in in that process where I could feel that I'm sort of um entering a different world or I'm levitating I knew there's something and I would I would feel that when I would get to that zone and I would snap out of it and and look at the thing that I wrote it's it's almost magic you know I enjoy being there so I think that's what kept me going back for 2 years every day 9 to 3 Wow that takes a lot of
0: discipline Yeah When I wrote my book, a lot of people said, why now? So I'm curious, why now for you at this stage in your life? Did you feel you wanted to write a memoir? Because you told your story to the world in a TED Talk in 2014. Mm -hmm. Did you think, gosh, I want to do more than a 10-minute TED Talk? My story is more complex and interesting than that?
2: Yeah, I went from being stealth as a fashion model where the industry didn't know my model agent did not know I was trans, right? I was hiding. I was living these two realities. I went from being stealth to TED Talk to United Nations to traveling the world advocating for trans rights. And it felt like I was missing that in-between. I didn't get a chance to process that in-between. And writing this book was my process to unpack a lot more. I didn't write it chronological. And it really went straight to... My time in New York City when I was a model because I felt like if I'm going to do this, which is this big task, I felt like, let me focus on, I think, the most difficult part in in my journey, which is crazy because I was modeling. But it was also the most traumatic, you know, in my life.
0: In fact, the book starts with you in a John Legend music video in 2005. Mm -hmm. And the anxiety you felt, honestly, I felt anxiety just reading those pages, worried and so concerned that you would be found out and how agonizing that was.
2: Yeah. Why did you want to start with that? Oh, give me goosebumps. (laughs) I think it represented a lot of things, a lot of things in my journey. But there's a lot of magical coincidence in the book in that beginning of that story, the the title of, of the song itself, you know, which is Now Who Is She? And then the lyrics that he was singing to me during my part of the music video was just incredibly like magical coincidence that he's asking me who I am. I was so visible, but I was also invisible, consciously invisible at the same time, while at the same time feeling sexy, Feeling myself, feeling like my dream, but at the same time knowing this conversation that's in my head in that moment where I need to be careful. but I also need to do good so I could really continue this job. It it really just encapsulates a lot of, you know, what the book is about, you know. And that
0: anxiety of being who you are privately, but not who you are publicly.
2: All of those things happening at the same time, you know. This was a dream that I've had growing up in the Philippines, and it was a dream come true. But that, you know, little fanboy boy, that who I am in the Philippines thinking, like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm actually doing this. But then some parts of me really want to just, like, get me out of here. I cannot continue doing this, you know, because it was I can't really, keep
0: living a lie, basically. I like to think I'm a
2: very complicated woman, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: Let's talk about your childhood, because I loved reading about it. It was so evocative with your siblings and walking into your house and smelling Clorox on the linoleum floors and then walking a little further and seeing your dad fixing dinner
2: while your mom was at work. You know, I don't think at the time in the Philippines there's no such thing as considered, like, middle class. You know, it was just the beginning. I mean, my mom was working, but I definitely know at the end of the month we're always running into like who do we borrow money from to you know to, to put food on the table. You know, we're always running out of money for sure. So my mom was working, my dad right. was a stay at home dad. So Which was very unusual class, for the time, right? Yeah. It's you know, Philippines has a very long history of matriarchal society, but also in the context of, you know, are patriarchal, you know, control as well. But mm-hmm. the woman runs the country. Like, small businesses are run by women. My mom is a very strong woman, so definitely. I, at the time, I didn't see it, like, uh, as the reverse role. It's just some—obviously, I was young. I, there's right. no critical analysis. I knew, I knew my mom goes to work, uh, and then my dad stay at home, and he's the best stay-at-home dad,
0: you know? Except when he drank, and then things got a little hairy. Very, very hairy. And and it was hard for him. It was hard for him to have, even if it's a matriarchal society, it was clear from your writing that wasn't easy having your mom as the breadwinner for yeah, him, um, right?
2: You know, I, I have not spoken so much about my dad. And this book was the first time really, like, talking about it. Um, even in my TED Talk, I, I shared, obviously, the support and the love of my mom. And this book was actually the first one where I was really, you know, able to process what that was. But certainly this book was my first time to really remember a lot of the complication, you know, of the relationship with my dad because I always remember, you know, being taken, you know, Um, by him at the wet market and going every day, taking me to, you know, learn. I think in some way I learned how to be comfortable in the kitchen. I love cooking because of my dad, because of that bonding that we had, right? I mean, every day at at 6 p.m., we would go to Guadalupe Public Market, and he's known to be like the best chef in the neighborhood. Actually, he would get hired to cook in a fiesta, you know, but then it's fiesta, there's drinking, and he would come home drinking, Maybe that feeling of guilt that he wasn't the provider um, took its toll. And I think it's expressed in that very violent rage.
0: Gina, why don't you read
2: a passage
0: from your book all about your childhood in Manila?
2: Sure. In all, there were six of us. My mother, my father, my two sisters, my brother, and me. Living in what was effectively a 9-by-12-foot room separated from our neighbors by a flimsy plywood wall. Whenever it rained too hard, the house would flood, and we would have to use wooden dining chairs to elevate our beds. We also had to keep a watchful eye for the crafty jumping rats, who liked to steal pieces of our marinated pork tocino or slices of spam that had been left on the table, ferrying them back to the places unknown as they squeaked with the delight of their pillage. We'll be right back.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
0: And we're back. I know you write about when you were five or six years old and you had an
2: epiphany. Can you share that part of the book with us? Standing there in front of the mirror, I started to take off my T-shirt, which had a print of one of the animated robots from the show Voltus 5, so I could step into the shower. But right before I was about to slip out of it, While the collar was still around the top of my head, I paused and looked at my bare face. There was a presence in it. It was speaking to me out of nothingness. The oversized shirt had flattened the top of my hair, the fabric draping behind me like a veil all the way to the floor below. As I swayed gently from side to side, My shirt moved like actual real long hair would, brushing against my shoulders in a powerful moment of recognition. It is my long hair. I whispered to myself, I'm a girl.
0: I want to talk to you about when you first had this feeling.
2: That was probably the first time where I felt that recognition. And... When people say, like, what are your early memories? I'd like to think that that's, that's the thing that's kept on coming up because it was so strong. That's the one that was so significant to me. And to see that in the mirror, the reflection at such a young age, that, that knowledge that, like, this is who I am. And saying it first to myself was powerful, I think. Many trans people
0: I've talked to say from a very early age, they felt not comfortable. In their bodies, not comfortable in their skin—that something was wrong. Mm -hmm. Did you sense that even before you had that moment in the mirror? Yeah,
2: trans people, especially young trans people, we know—you know—it's we know that truth and how powerful it is. It becomes uncomfortable when we go outside. You know, our immediate surrounding or safe spaces or neighborhoods or communities that doesn't accept it. You know, that's when it becomes uncomfortable, or. The early messages that we receive about who we're supposed to be, that's when it becomes uncomfortable, but the truth of that recognition is very present to every single young trans person. I knew it happened to me and all you know the places when they travel when they talk to trans youth and in their family it's very early. we knew at a very early age I'm
0: fascinated how different it is in the Philippines in terms of the way Transgender people and trans culture in general Mm -hmm. is is treated and Mm -hmm. and seen You write when I was growing up Catholicism and trans beauty pageants inspired equal Fanaticism families would go straight from mass to watching the super serena serena trans pageants on TV back at home No one really saw this as a paradox It was just part of our unique cultural blend that is so wild and so fascinating to me that this conservative Catholic country has a very expansive view of gender and a very accepting view
2: of of gender in general. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say um, – I want to offer, uh, I guess, more nuanced context here. Uh, acceptance is a very, very big word. Um, right.
0: Tell me about sort of why – it is celebrated, and you were a femme a femme boy, yes, and you talk about sort of the way you walked, and it never felt like you were full of shame for who you were, and that is I think a pretty foreign concept here in the United States,
2: yeah shame is is a is big component, especially when I moved here. But growing up, you know, that culture that we have, it's very embedded in in our culture, gender fluidity. We don't have he or she in our language. So it's very much embedded in our culture pre-colonial in the Philippines. Um, But because it's so embedded in our culture pre-colonial times, and then Catholicism you know, sort of took over in the Philippines, all over the Philippines, and then instituted this thing called Catholic Fiesta Celebration, which is year-round But during those fiesta celebrations, which is a Catholic celebration, the main event for everybody to go see is transgender beauty pageants, where the whole family watches it, you know. And it's just part of how we celebrate it because it's been embedded in our culture, you know, and that became my job when I was 15. There's a pageant almost every single day all over the Philippines during the month of May.
0: And growing up in that environment, did it make you feel much more comfortable with your early gender fluidity and the fact that, you know, that you carried yourself like a girl and not like a boy? And can you explain sort of your mom watching you, you describe her, you know, radiantly watching you with so much pride. There was never... Any kind of conflict for her?
2: Yeah. Certainly she had questions, especially uh, as we have gotten closer in our relationship, you know, in our woman-to-woman conversations. Um, she had questions. But at that time, growing up, I wouldn't even say, like, it's the power. You know, it's so easy for me to say it's the power of representation. It's cultural You know, it's so embedded in our, it's in our language, it's in our every society. I like to say that trans people are culturally mainstream visible in the Philippines. I also, again, recognize how lucky I am to have, you know, mom, even my dad, who fully accepted me and loved me, not one resistance to, to, to it all. And I guess it's love, you know, I guess, you know, my mom truly just loves me that that's My mom and my dad just somehow found that in them to accept me and love me. When you were 19,
0: you went to Thailand to get gender affirmation surgery. Mm -hmm. And your mom came with you. Again, an example of how incredibly supportive she was to you. Can you talk about that experience with your mom?
2: Just take a... Excuse me. Yeah. Floors. You know, I'm. I wouldn't be here without the love of my mom. You know, going to, with me to Thailand and and to go through that. Um. You know, my mom is super Catholic still. I mean, I can't question her Bible. You, she would hang up the phone. Um. But the love that she, that she has and support, never questioned who I am. Um going, you know, a Catholic mother supporting her trans daughter fully. I mean, we went to we went we went to have an irreversible surgery in 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 a suburb where nobody spoke English. And she was like, I'm coming with you. I will hold your hand, give you my rosary before you go into um you know, your operation, and to be there. It was exactly what I needed, you know, and it was obviously a big decision. Lots of fear going through my head um, in what my life would would have been if I didn't have the support and love of, of my mom particularly. You also have, or had, a trans mom. Tiger Lily,
0: a woman who would become your lifelong friend and mentor. You met her when you were 15 years old. So tell us about the role she played in your life.
2: Oh, Tiger Lily. I just called her, you know, on the way. <laughs> we we speak all the time. You know, I've known. She's still in the Philippines? Uh, she's still in the Philippines. I've known Tiger Lily since I was 15. Um, you know, another woman that changed my life. I was 15 when I met her saw something in me. She asked me to join my first pageant. And that pageant that I shared uh, called Super Sirena, which is this televised pageant, I remember I was 15 years old. I was still in high school. And I remember just watching one of the the finals of this pageant. Uh, I was still in school watching it. It was amazing seeing all the girls dreaming, you know, but also not vocalizing that I want to be like them. And little did I know, a week, a week and a half later, I would meet Tiger Lily and I would join trans pageant. Somehow she saw something in me. She made me try on the swimsuit. I felt, you know, sexy, you know, wearing that two-piece neon swimsuit. And she saw the confidence. She made me join that pageant. And I, you know, the, the woman that I was seeing on television was in that competition. I beat all of them. Like, it was like a fantasy world. And, and she took me on, you know. And then our life journey together has been, you know, magical, I'd say. She kind of, you know, she became my other mother. She, she was my chosen mother. She was my best friend. She was also my pageant manager all at once.
0: I wondered about your mom moving to America when you were still pretty young. You decided to join your mom in California. It was after you won the Miss Gay Universe pageant in two thousand. That was a huge deal for people who may not be familiar with the different pageants. That's
2: that's a that major,
0: major, major deal.
2: Yeah, that was the biggest. And for me to have won that at, at such a young age and I was 16, about to turn 17, I reached the top at such a young age, became a pageant diva, making a lot of money, the most popular trans pageant queen. And to win that big one was was the biggest moment, you know, and and that just solidified my legacy in the, in the pageant culture. My mom one day called me and she said, you know, your green card petition came through, you're now moving to the U.S. And initially I said no to her because... I was a pageant diva, you know, I was a pageant queen in the Philippines. You know, I'm making so much money, you know, all of that thing as a young, you know, pageant queen is an overachiever. But then when she came back to me and she said, you know, when you moved to the U.S., you could change your name and gender marker in your legal documents. And that did it for me. And as a 17-year-old Trans-Filipina, that's a young immigrant, 17, a culture shock. That was the biggest culture shock for me. I mean, the first question I asked my mom, where's the trans pageants? Like, there's no trans pageants here. But somehow I met this uh, model who used to model in New York City, She said, if you really want to do this, you have to move to New York City. And I was like, okay, I'm going to move to New York City. And because of that thought, it opened up that whole floodgate again of wanting to be a model. I wanted to pursue it. But the fear is always there that you know anyone could out me, and it would destroy people's career. Like it happened to, it's well documented. It happened to so many trans women, trans particularly trans women of color, that the moment they got outed, they were done, you know, discarded. So you have this ambition to be so visible. Right, Whether on on Times Square Billboard or doing a commercial, you want to do that, but there's risk. The bigger the job, the bigger the paranoia that I was going through. And honestly, right now, even speaking to you in this voice, in this tone, I used to always calculate the little tones of how I speak, how I talk to someone. Am I drinking enough? you know, water so that my voice is more fluid. You know, like, these are the kind of things that was going through my head. Well, you talked
0: about, like, would someone see your Adam's apple during the making of that John Legend video? And then when someone asked to talk to you, you were terrified that you
2: had been found out. Yeah. I felt like I was a spy. I felt like I was in a clandestine operation every day of my life. And... I think now it makes sense why I liked spy genres, because why I connect with them, because I really felt like I was. I have to put up this, this cover. We'll be right back.
0: If you want to get smarter every morning with a breakdown of the news and fascinating takes on health and wellness and pop culture, sign up for our daily newsletter, Wake Up Call, by going to katyCurrick.com. And we're back. What made you finally say, screw it, I am going to tell the world who I am and I'm going to tell my story?
2: Mm. There's so many moments, little, I guess, because I was in that process. There were so many little hints that maybe I want to do it. When am I going to do it? Questioning and overanalyzing what could happen in my career. It manifested in in a physical condition. I had certainly, I was very depressed. I know that. The anguish, emotional anguish, the mental anguish of having to always edit my story. And always being on guard. That's stressful. I had, you know, a, a very crazy moment of eczema that manifested in my body. It, it just somehow... It took over my body that I got to the point that I thought I'll never be able to wear swimsuit. There's still some marks here and there, and it's now a present thing. When I get stressed, it comes up, and I listened to that, but that was the big outbreak where it was all over my body. And it it took a woman, dermatologist, who sat me down and said, after giving me all the steroids and everything, nothing was working, and she said, what is going on emotionally, spiritually? psychologically you need to listen to whatever that's going on didn't tell her obviously that I'm trans but I knew exactly what she's talking about like my truth was quite literally coming out of my body wanting to come out so I listened to that my partner and I went to Tulum Mexico for my 30th birthday and um somehow you know that magical moment when when he asked me what does turning 30 means to me, somehow it felt so pure in that moment to say it. You know, I was entering, you know, I was turning 30. I, I couldn't take it anymore. I I had to, you know, tell my story. And I somehow once I made that decision, it was as if nothing could stop me. I wanted to share my story in the biggest possible platform that I could think of. It. W- I went from... The decision of, again, being so ashamed to, like, I'm going to come out on a TED stage. <laughs> well that's that? What was the reaction? You know, this is 2014. I mean, looking back, talk about timing in that moment. I mean, this was, I gave the TED Talk March 2014. And that June, Laverne Cox on the cover of Time magazine. And 2014 was something in the, in the zeitgeist.
0: In Late 2014, after your TED talk, you traveled to the Philippines Mm -hmm. to uh, lobby in favor of trans rights in front of the legislature. But you learned that not much had changed in the Philippines. What happened, Gina?
2: Oh my God. Uh, That was talking about, you know, humbling me in that moment. I was invited to speak at this conference advocating for anti-discrimination policies, but also specifically trans rights. And, you know, I was the guest of honor speaking my story, coming from America, walking into, you know, the House of Representatives in the Philippines. And I was with my trans mom, Tiger Lily, and we were there together. And as we were walking through the security, the security guard, I was looking so fabulous. I felt like I was having my Angelina Jolie moment, you know, with my fabulous dress my, my, my friend made me feeling so confident and as I was walking in the security guard, sir, 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 you need to go through the mail section of the security. I was like just dumbfounded about that moment and couldn't help it. I went full on snappy trans 101 to that guy and just said like somebody that looks like a woman who speaks like a woman looks like a woman. She is a woman, you know, and I just like pushed through. And didn't even like. I just ignored them. You know, there was a moment of like, I need to follow through and like what he said. But this is why I was invited here to speak about these things. I felt that, in as much as yes, we're going to talk about trans rights, but in the most basic thing of, the security doesn't even know how to communicate that in in a space that should have been right. You know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. So, well, I was going to ask you about that. It seems. The best way
0: for us to close out this conversation is to talk about where we are with trans issues today, Gina. It seems like a lot of progress was being made in 2014, 15, 16, 17. And now we're experiencing a major backlash. Laverne Cox recently said, in 2023, we're at the height of the backlash against trans visibility. We have way more people who are educated about trans folks, but there's also been a rigorous misinformation media machine. Why do you
2: think we are where we are today? It's ongoing every day. You know, I'd say there's layers. I think one is power. I think the people in power, particularly in in the political right, sees that trans people does not have that, you know, same, I guess, Power pull when it comes to organizing, and you know, at the, at least that perception. So there's that component that, like, oh, we could attack this and easily demonize the people that is the most misunderstood in America. So there's a component of power. The conversation that I'm having with my you know, my fellow trans folks is that I'm freaking exhausted. You know, to feel that you're the only one fighting for this, fighting in this moment. Why can't we have the same support when marriage equality was happening? Why is that systematic approach when marriage equality was happening? Why can't we have that? That kind of exhaustion that we're feeling and speaking to each other, we need more. Because we know this, in in history have said it, when they come for one group, they're coming for everybody. I think another
0: misunderstanding that I often hear, and I'd love you to clear it up for people, is people who are worried about children making big life choices. And I always want to say, well, kids are not getting gender-affirming surgery when they're 12, 13, you know, but a constant refrain I hear and read as this dialogue continues is the concern that children are making permanent decisions when they don't have the maturity to make those decisions. And I wondered if you could address that, Gina, for people. Sure.
2: Um, I think I'd say every respected, prominent medical institutions have have instituted, you know, these processes. There was... No resistance has been established for many, many years. W-PASS to American uh, Pediatric Association that deals with children in America. That's been well, well, well established for many, many years. The reason why the demonization of that misinformation is, again, re- related to that power that I was talking about earlier, because it's such an easy target. Kids, young kids... I I would remember when I was growing up is that just want to express, right? There's nothing wrong in letting a kid, you know, put a little nail polish and play. It's play. Why can't we allow kids to play and express? It's all part of that. And it's been debunked many times that, you know, a young kid does not have to go through any big medical decisions with a, presence of their family, with the support and the systematic approach in medical establishments until they're ready to do it, which is, you know, 18, 16 years old, you know, with the guidance of of a family member and a medical professional.
0: How do you fight this backlash? Do you—you talk about being tired of being an activist. I know that when I did my documentary— I talked to some trans activists who said, it's not really our job to educate you. You know, this is why God created Google. On the other hand, representation and conversation, I think, can move the ball forward. So how do we get to a place of deeper understanding and
2: acceptance? I think the bigger conversation of equity you know i'm a storyteller i'm a media producer i'm i'm a storyteller at heart i think stories of trans people from so many different experiences so many different point of views has to be told by trans people particularly even more powerful because it might seem like it's an easy cop out answer that because when you see yourself and represented it it creates empathy it is obviously very Ex- exhausting to always talking about this to always to to defend your humanity to right. debate
0: your your existence um it's almost as if i would have to defend being a cisgender
2: imagine you know, that a heterosexual female yeah it you know point of comparison right i mean imagine that You know, if people would have a little bit more empathy to really see through beyond this demonization of, you know. Well, also, I would get tired of talking about it incessantly. As an artist, as a storyteller, and in this book that I wrote, I dared myself to really unapologetically express who I am. My stories, my hopes, my dreams, my vulnerability, my playfulness, just like any other human being. Just like any other... The sameness of what a trans person is experiencing to a cis person is experiencing, as it should be. So you did your TED Talk in 2014. You
0: have this beautiful memoir in 2023.
2: What do you see yourself doing in the next decade? You know, I think I want to honor the... the the storyteller in me, the artist in me. Um, I want to direct more. I directed, you know, a docu-series with PBS about Filipino-American frontline workers called Caretakers. They got Emmy nominated and Glad Media Award nominated. And the baseline is I want to tell more story, uh, whether it's I'm directing or acting in it or, or, you know, there was a part of me for so long that because I was living stealth, I wasn't really living up to like who I am fully. And that's the anxiety-filled person is who just want to achieve part of me. But now I, I looked at that as, as a sense of, okay, this is my purpose now, is to tell more story, to create more story, to, create more, to present more worlds that people have not seen before. Gina Rosero, it's
0: been so fun talking <laughs> to you and, and it's fascinating. I know this is your first interview for the book. How do you think it went? Were you happy? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you made me cry, that's for sure. I didn't. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Gina. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for honoring me in this moment to share this. I've been saying that I can't wait to talk about it. It's been a long process, and here I am talking about it, crying, you know, laughing, and going through it, and I'm sure there would be more, and truly, truly appreciate you taking this time. Thank you. I, I love I the book, and I love
0: talking to you, and I hope a lot of people... Not only love listening, but also love learning from your story. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have a question for me or want to share your thoughts about how you navigate this crazy world, reach out. You can leave a short message at 609-512-5505. Or you can send me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. Next question is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. Our supervising producer is Marcy Thompson. Our producers are Adriana Fazio and Catherine Law. Our audio engineer is Matt Russell, who also composed our theme music. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to the description in the podcast app or visit us at katiecouric.com. You can also find me on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.